that the Son lifted up. From John chapter 12, verses 27 to 36. The Son lifted up. Now in our series in the Gospel of John, we, we recall that the overall purpose of John is to encourage us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The first 11 chapters... We had Jesus backing up his words with many miracles. With each miracle, the intensity of the opposition against Jesus continued to grow. Now, in, in chapter 12, chapter 12 serves as, as a bridge to the rest of the book. Our current chapter then is, is this transition, chapter 12 is a transition between all that has occurred before and all that will come. What is to come is suffering, death and resurrection for which Jesus is preparing his disciples. Last week we saw how some Greeks came asking for Jesus. And while the significance of this might have escaped everybody else who was there, Jesus certainly saw it as a key point that the time has come. Why? Because it has signalled the approach of the final hour. Jesus was sent to his own, to the Jewish people, and suddenly some ethnics, some foreigners started coming. They wanted to have a private session. They wanted to have a hearing with Jesus. This is, of course, signalling of what is going to happen in the, in the book of Acts, where the gospel will go to Samaria, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. How will this happen? Well, the holy seed, the seed must die in order to bear much fruit And just as Jesus being the holy seed, he must die, his disciples will also follow. They will follow him to death. And in spite of what people might think of Jesus, Jesus being a victim of a terrible injustice, how the people turn on him and and the crowds and the disciples abandoning him and sold out by his, betrayed by Judas. You sort of see it as, 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 a, as a plot for a horrible movie of injustice. And yet, as we read further and further into it, we know that Jesus is completely in control of the whole situation. That is the mystery of the cross. So we look at verse 28, the purpose, the purpose. Verse 28 says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. And as the hour is ever closer, Jesus is is seized with a, a frightening apprehension of that dying of which he had just spoken. His soul is moved to its very depths by the horror of the coming hour. 
now reveals to us something of his inward, his inward suffering and anguish. And what was the reason? When I've just said that he is in control. So if you're in control, why the anguish? Why the inward suffering? Was it the insults and sufferings for which he was about to receive and the whipping and all that? No. It was the prospect of being made sin for us, made a curse for us. The righteous wrath on him from a sin-hating God. The key to understanding this correctly is the question, what shall I say? What shall I say? And here Jesus reveals that though praying for deliverance from this dreadful hour would seem the right and logical thing to do, this is not what he prays for. This is because that very hour is the purpose he had come into this world for. Being born of a virgin. Joseph and Mary working as a carpenter, living a life, wearing, living in our skin, then announcing his ministry, teaching all the miracles. Was that all, was that, all that Jesus had come for? Just to be an example, just to teach? No, he actually came to do something more, to actually die for our sins. That was actually the reason for which he came. Hence, he will not pray for deliverance from that hour, no matter how dreadful it would be. And he knew how dreadful it would be. He was not a victim of to injustice. He was, in fact, very much a willing Sacrifice. He lays down his life to take it up again. So that is the purpose. Then we have the glory. We have the glory. Verse, uh, first one is 27, then we have in verse 28, we have the glory. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Notice that it's not about him, is it? It's about glorifying the Father. Jesus here is is setting the example for us in seeking to glorify God the Father. He was willing to do whatever was necessary to ensure that God was glorified. So instead of praying, deliver me, his prayer was, Father, glorify your name. This is a prayer of full surrender to the will of God. A selfless prayer which will be echoed again in the garden of Gethsemane, in that anguish where his his sweat, the, the agony was like drops of blood and he just kept praying and praying while the disciples kept sleeping and sleeping. Christ looked death in the eye in all its awfulness 
as the wages of sin was due to be paid. And even though it wasn't his debt, it wasn't his sins, his head bowed to the will of the Father so that the Father might be glorified in the death and sacrifice of the Son. I wonder if this is the way that we pray when facing difficult trials and painful experiences. Do you pray for deliverance? Or do you pray that God's name will be glorified? And we leave it to God to decide how his name will be glorified. Think about it. Sometimes it's through healing that his name is glorified. Sometimes it is through death. As Remember that long story I told last week of those missionaries who went to Africa? Sometimes it is through death, the seed dying, that his name is magnified, is glorified. Do we ask to be delivered from the pain and the trial or do we ask for grace to bear it? I'm not being defeatist. I'm I'm saying that we, when we go through difficult times, and I know that many of us are going through difficult times, what is the ultimate purpose of what it is you're going through? So one way to improve our prayers is to change the way we pray. Surrender our will to the will of God and express to him in our prayer, Lord, above all else, Lord, above all else, let your will be done. Let your name be glorified in answering my prayer. And I think soon you will notice a difference in your prayer life because rather than being frustrated at unanswered prayer, you will have a newer understanding of the way that God answers prayer because you're submitting your will to a higher will, the will of the Father. Because God answers prayers that sincerely put his glory first and foremost in everything. Look at how prompt was the Father's response from the heavens. The response was, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. What, what, what a firm assurance this was of answered prayer. What, what, what a powerful testimony it should have been to everybody else who was there listening to this. It should have been that the Father will be glorified through the Son. It was glorified in His birth. It was glorified in His life. It will be glorified in His trial and it will be glorified in His death and resurrection. He will glorify it and He will glorify it again. Now we talk a lot about glory throughout the Bible. Uh, What does it mean? Paul Tripp, which, who's the guy who's actually coming to the men's uh, convention, 
in Katumba, he actually says this, no single drawing, he's talking about glory, no single drawing, painting, photograph or verbal description could ever capture glory. Glory isn't so much a thing as it is a description of a thing. Glory isn't a part of God, it's all that God is. Every aspect of who God is and every part of what God does is glorious. But even that's not enough of a description. Not only is he glorious in every way, but his very glory is glorious. Can you get your head around that? So to glorify God means to speak of his majesty, his holiness, his perfection, his omniscience, his great love, etc., etc., etc. It keeps going on and on. It is to declare in public or in private the exceeding greatness of God's character and purity. It means to offer praise, adoration to God in what we do over and over again. Now, against the glory of God, we now come to this. I've just lifted you up, now I'm going to bring you down to reality. The dullness of human beings. Human dullness, verses 29 to 30. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him and Jesus said, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now, the voice of God, if you had been there, this... The voice of God, it must have been really something, right? God speaking from heaven. Maybe you have heard it, I have heard it, that if there is a God, then he needs to speak clearly to me. Then I will know that he is there and I will not doubt. Yet here again we have proof that the natural man is incapable of even recognising God's voice when he is speaking. Here it's attributed to what? It's attributed to thunder. It's attributed to an angel, but not to God, not to God the Father. Why is that? Well, for one thing, they weren't expecting it, and then it's... The the thunder represents nature. It's actually much easier to believe in nature, to even worship nature, which is quite popular today. Let's go and hug a tree. And then there is spirituality. Oh, I'm very spiritual. I think everything is spiritual. So there is talk of angels. Everybody has an angel and... I have my little angel in my car and in my shelf and everybody's got little angels. So for them to believe in angels wasn't too much. So they said, well, an angel had spoken. But no one thought it could actually be God. But it's actually God who's trying to get your attention. For your benefit, he said. It's not for my benefit, Jesus said. It's for your benefit. It's a confirmation. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. 
What would it be like to hear an audible voice from heaven? Um, I don't know if you've heard Savet's uh, testimony. Savet, uh, the killing fields, they can't be with us anymore in our morning service because they, the Cambodian service is actually in Cabramatta now at this time. But he, in his testimony, he tells of the opportunity he had to take revenge on the, the man who killed his family, his parents. And he was ready to kill him. He saw the man. He'd been waiting for years to kill this person, to take revenge as the firstborn son. It was his responsibility to take, take the revenge. This is in the midst of the of a situation which was a very tense refugee camp. And uh, just as he was about to do that, he heard God speaking to him, saying to him, what's that going to gain you? He clearly heard God's voice. What is important is he recognised it as God's voice, isn't it? Because I think many people hear God's voice but they don't recognise it. And what did he do? He forgave that person. He wanted every, every ounce in his body, every, everything in his body, wanted to kill him. But the voice of God stopped him and he was obedient. Now, this wasn't the first time that God had spoken from heaven. It, was, it wasn't just here, but three times, in fact, in the scriptures, as far as we know, the Father speaks audibly to the Son at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end of his ministry. The Father's voice was heard when? First, at his Baptism, correct. The second time it was in connection to his forthcoming death. Where was that? On the Mount of Transfiguration. Listen to him. This is my son, God was saying. Now the voice of God is heard by the people for their benefit to mark the end of the public ministry of Jesus. Now, next week we will look at verse 37, but just taking verse 37 into account here, we know that these people didn't believe Jesus. If they didn't recognise the Son, how on earth would they recognise the Father? Because the Son is the image of the Father. And even though he had spoken for their benefit, here again we have the failure of these Jews to recognise the Father's voice. What does the Word of God sound like to you? You do know that the Word of God, the Bible, is there for whose benefit? Is it for God's benefit? Well, it certainly does glorify Him because it does come from Him, but whose benefit is it? Is it? It's for us. 
so that we know that God is speaking to us. So if it is God's word, if it is his voice, if it is him speaking to us, what should we do? Read it. Read it. Know it, study it, meditate it. Chew it over like the cows, ruminate. Constantly. Because you get to know your Father in heaven, you get to know your Creator, you get to know your Redeemer. King David said, the heavens are telling the glory of God. What does that mean? It means that he is actually shouting at us through the world that he has created. He shouts with the clouds. He shouts with the blue expanse. He, he shouts with, with gold on the horizons in the morning and in the afternoon. He shouts with galaxies and stars and wherever you point your telescope or your microscope, it tells you of an intricate, delicate, marvellous, amazing Creator. He's shouting everywhere. He's shouting, I am glorious. Now, if any human being would get up after scoring a goal on a, on a, on a soccer field or after scoring 300 runs in the cricket field, I am glorious! Or, or indeed, um, uh, like Muhammad Ali, I am the greatest! Uh, you would think, oh, gee, he's full of himself, isn't he? There is no human being upon whom that description fits, only to God. Because he will not share his glory with anybody else. He is majestic, glorious. He is the one who glorifies his name and he will do it again and again. So let's open our eyes, open our ears. It is like this, only better and better and better once you really get to know me, God is saying to us. Jesus lifted up, verses 31 to 33. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. Now let's look at some significant points about the cross. Firstly, it says here that the cross is the time of judgment of this world. The world thought that they were passing, they were passing judgment on Jesus by shouting, crucify him, by condemning him and nailing him on a cross. In reality, the cross was actually passing judgment on them. It is our sins that caused Jesus to go to the cross. And it's because of that that Jesus will one day either be your saviour or he will be your judge. It all depends on whether you believe in him or not. Secondly, the cross is when the ruler of this world is driven out. The cross becomes the defeat of Satan, not yet the final triumph. Satan's power is now neutralised by the cross. 
something that started back in Genesis chapter 3, is now neutralised by the cross. The world's prince here receives his sentence, though its complete execution is yet in the future. Satan's hold over the world was broken at the cross. Remember that Satan, when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he said, I will give you half, half of my kingdom if you will bow to me. But Jesus could have chosen the easy route. Jesus said, no. No negotiation, no deal. And Paul tells us, the Apostle Paul actually tells us that on the cross in Colossians 2.15, Christ, and I quote the verse, spoiled principalities and powers, having made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. It happened on the cross. Thirdly, the cross is the lifting up and the exaltation of Christ. Jesus being lifted up in verse 32 has has a double or even a triple meaning because we know that in John many times we find this, that there is a deeper meaning to that expression or, or that word. And certainly the case here. Isaiah prophesied, Behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up. Now, there, there are three ways in which Jesus was lifted up from the earth and by, and by doing so, he drew men to himself. Well, very obviously, he was lifted up on the cross in the crucifixion. What is the attraction? How can a cross draw men to him? What is, what is the attraction in this atrocity? Remember that Caiaphas unintentionally actually prophesied, he says, one man should die for the people. We looked at that. And this man, not any man, Jesus would die for the people the world over. The lifting up of Jesus provides eternal life to everyone who believes. In John 3.14, just before John 3.16, these are the words, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. If you do not believe in him, you do not have eternal life. So Jesus is lifted up at the cross. Jesus is also lifted up in the resurrection. Jesus demonstrated his power before the tomb of Lazarus and him being the resurrection and the life will be demonstrated here as he comes out of the tomb because we know that a dead saviour cannot really save anybody, can it? What is the point? He was lifted up from the grave. Up from the grave he arose. Aye, that's it. And gave ultimate glory to the Father. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.11, The Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And if the same Holy Spirit lives in you, he will give life to your bodies in the same way. Do you have the Holy Spirit in you? If you are in Christ, indeed you have. And you must be alive. 
You must be in a, in a, in a body that, that has been given life, not by anything else, but by God. He is lifted up in ascension. That is the third way that Christ is lifted up. Now, Jesus knew that his crucifixion and resurrection would shortly be followed by his ascension into heaven. And you read about his ascension in, in uh, Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. So how does his ascension, how does that draw us? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us, and this is one of those verses that you go, that's a bit kooky, isn't it? Apostle Paul tells us, well, if you're a son and daughter of God, this is actually something we look forward to. After that, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And we will be with the Lord forever. Can I hear an amen? Amen, amen to that. Exactly. So, levitation. We just keep going and going and no parachutes come down. We will be going up. No parachutes, no flying equipment, no, no nothing. No drones. We'll be flying up. But you're looking forward to that day. thing is, verses 34 to 36, we need to believe the light. We need to believe the light. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before the darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of the light. And when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Now the crowd has a, has a problem, don't they? They didn't recognise Jesus, the Messiah, who was walking with them. That's, that's the reason why they asked, who is this Son of Man? The Son of Man was there, they didn't recognise him. And I think that points to at least a couple of problems. It certainly points to a spiritual problem, doesn't it? And, and, and it's not for, for lack of evidence, is it? I mean, throughout his entire public ministry, they had seen Jesus in the flesh, in person. They heard him teach, they heard him preach and, and experience the miracles that he did. They ate the bread that he multiplied, the fish as well. They saw the people who were healed walking in the midst. Yet even after all this, they just didn't get it. just didn't get it. So if you think that a miracle or a sign or a wonder is going to get people to believe, they're always going to look for another explanation. They're going to call it chance. 
They're going to call it, ah, shrug their shoulders and move on. Because they simply can't recognize the Father's voice. They cannot recognize the Son of Man who walked in our midst. Secondly, it points to an intellectual problem, doesn't it? And, and this one, they actually have a point because the law, that's the Old Testament, actually taught that the Messiah, the Christ, would remain forever. Those are the prophecies. So how can Jesus say he will be lifted up because they understood what lifted up means, meant, but at the very least it meant that he was going to be crucified. But if he's going to be lived forever, how can, be, how can he die? It's not a bad question, is it? But in asking the question, we answer the question because those two concepts cannot fit in anybody else except Jesus. They can only be reconciled in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He is God. Only God can die and live forever. And we finish up with these with these words, Jesus calls himself the light that is with them for only a little while. Now in the Gospel of John, this theme of, of light appears quite often, doesn't it? He said in chapter 1 verses 4 and 5, he says, In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And And at the moment, remember this crucifixion, at, the mo- at, at that particular moment when the darkness came over the earth, it would appear that the darkness had overcome the light. Not so. Why does Jesus call for people to come to the light now? The now is today as well. Why the urgency? Because there is a limited time in which God's grace will continue. The light is his grace. The light also is understanding. That's another word for, for light, is understanding. It's revelation. But it's only for a, for a limited time, as the ads say. And I've come across people who say, look, yeah, yeah, I'll give my life to Christ, but I'm too young now. I, I, you know, I'm having too much fun. I've got to party. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. Hey, um, or yeah, come talk to me a few years later when I'm getting a bit older. How do you know you've got tomorrow? Do you know how hard it is to get old people to suddenly recognise that the way they've lived their life has been wrong after? 50, 60, 70 years. The majority of people who become Christians do it between the ages of about 15 and 25. And after that, the, the odds are stacked against you. Now, obviously nothing is impossible for God. We know that. And we've all heard of the, the deathbed confessions, just like on the cross. But the light is fading. The light is not going to be there forever. Why? Because it's, because there, there is come a time, there will come a time for judgment. That's what it says here. 
because the cross stands as the judgment of the world. The cross is a reminder of the coming condemnation for every person who has rejected Christ, who is drawing you to himself. Jesus died for you, and your rejection of him is worthy of judgment. We live in a world where it will appear that in so many levels of our society there is an ever-increasing darkness. And we know that before the end comes, it will get darker. Jesus, the light of the world, is with us. But what did Jesus say? You are the light of the world, he told us. Let your light shine. And it is in the darkness, even in this present darkness, where your light will shine the brightest. We need to keep that light shining. We need to keep reminding people of the judgment to come. We will not water down the gospel. We will not water down what it means to sin. Yes, we will get in trouble. We will lose friends. That's okay. Because why do we do this? For the approval of men and women? We do it for the glory of one, the glory of God. No more excuses. We are left without any excuse. We are the light. Let the light shine. Believe in the light. You have the light, Jesus said, so that you may become the children of the light. May God continue to work in us to make his light, as the Apostle Paul says, shine in our hearts so that we reflect the glory of the one and true God. Amen.